0: Good evening, I'm Sandra Peart, Dean of the Jepson School of Leadership Studies and it's my pleasure to welcome you to this evening's event, part of our Jepson Leadership Forum, Does Democracy Work? I'd like to take a couple seconds and welcome those who are watching this as we live stream this event. It's wonderful to have you with us um, virtually. I'd like to introduce now uh, a Jepson student, TJ Tan. Who, in turn will introduce our speaker. Born and raised in West Philadelphia, TJ is a double major in leadership studies and American studies. He's passionate about elevating marginalized communities through education and works tirelessly both on campus and off to make a difference in the lives of those around him. TJ currently interns at the Legal Aid Justice Center in Richmond, where he helps organize immigrant communities and promotes equitable immigration policy. He's worked at the Commonwealth Institute for Fiscal Analysis, a think tank that supports policies to improve low and middle income communities in Virginia. TJ serves currently as co-president of the Multicultural Student Solidarity Network an organization dedicated to fostering community among students of color. He has also partnered with College Truckers, I love this, a nationwide student-run shipping and storage company to make it easy for UR students to pick up, ship, and store their belongings. (laughs) I have two kids who could've used that. He hopes to attend law school when he graduates and will continue working with underrepresented communities in urban centers across the country. Please welcome T.J. Tan.
1: Thank you, Dean Peart. Dr. Larry Bartels is the Mayworth and Shane Chair of Public Policy and Social Science and Co-Director at the Center for the Study of Democratic Institutions at Vanderbilt University. He has been called one of the most influential political scientists of his generation. Dr. Bartels researches and teaches on public opinion, electoral politics, public policy, and political representation. He studies issues of representation and democratic theory and has done extensive research on the impact of economic conditions on voting behavior. In his book, Democracy for Realists, Why Elections Do Not Produce Responsive Government, Dr. Bartels asserts that even the most well-meaning voters are subject to the na- human nature and are more likely, likely to cast their votes on the basis of social identities and partis- partisanship loyalties, rather than political issues. Then-presidential can- candidate Barack Obama cited Dr. Bartels' book, Unequal Democracy, The Political Economy of the New Gilded Age, during his campaign, and the New York Times called it an economics book of the year. Professor Bartels is a trustee of the Russell Sage Foundation and the past vice president of the American Political Science Association. He is a fellow of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences of the American Academy of Political and Social Science, and he is also a member of the National Academy of Sciences. His work has appeared in the New York Times, the Washington Post, Los Angeles, and among others. Ladies and gentlemen, please help me welcome Dr. Larry Bartels.
2: Thank you, TJ, and thank you all for coming out. It's great to be here. Um, The book that I'm going to talk about is Democracy for Realists. Uh, The co-author is Christopher Aiken. I have to say to those of you who are students, I first met Chris Aiken when I was 17 years old and a first semester freshman in college. I was determined not to take any course that met before noon. He was determined not to teach any course that met before noon, uh, and we took it from there. We've been, um, he's been my, my mentor, uh, my colleague, and, and my co-author, so think about these courses that you take, uh, they can't affect your life. <laughs> I wanna start by saying a little bit about where this project fits in the way we think about democracy. Uh, Democratic ideals are hugely important and what we're gonna be about here is to think about the connection between democratic ideals and democratic reality. Um, You may have trouble seeing the details of this slide. What it does is to report um, perceptions from people around the world about the importance of democracy. They answered two questions. One, how important is it on a one to 10 scale uh, for you to live in a democracy? The responses are the kind of tannish lines there. You see that there's a huge amount of importance attached to democracy in principle in all of these countries. Um, Most of them are up quite close actually to the top of the scale at 10. The second question is how democratically is this country being governed? You can see by looking at the red bars that there's in every case significant discrepancy between people's attachment to democracy as an idea And their sense of how democracy is actually working in their own country. The uh, size of the gap varies some from place to place. Uh, One of the things you may not be able to see from the back of the room anyway, uh, but I can point out to you is where the United States falls, which is about two thirds of the way down this chart, which is to say, uh, most of these countries where people were asked these questions, uh, they were more interested in and concerned about democracy as an ideal than people in the United States were. There's a gap between our perception of how democratically the U.S. is governed and the importance that we attach to democracy. Um, If you look at the country just above the United States in the list there, uh, that country is China. The overall level of importance that people attach to democracy in China is almost exactly what it is in the United States, but maybe even more surprisingly, uh, the sense of the Chinese people about how democratically their country is being governed looks almost exactly like the average in the United States. So one thing you should conclude from this is that people in different parts of the world have very different ideas about the substance of democracy and what it actually means once we get below the the level of ideal to think about democracy as a reality. The political scientist Robert Dahl, probably maybe the most influential student of democracy in the 20th century, wrote in one of his books No state has ever possessed a government that fully measured up to the criteria of a democratic process. None is likely to. Yet the criteria provide highly serviceable standards for measuring the achievements and possibilities of democratic government. They can serve as guides for shaping and reshaping concrete arrangements, constitutions, practices, and political institutions. That sounds like a very standard idea about the ways that we should use democratic ideals in thinking about real democracy, but it seems, to me to be quite misguided, if the ideals are themselves so unrealistic that they don't really provide a reliable basis for thinking about what direction we might go to actually improve the working of democracy on the ground. Here's a kind of comparison from an early um, work by Graham Wallace at the beginning of the 20th century. He wrote, no doctor would now begin a medical treatise by saying the ideal man requires no food and is impervious to the action of bacteria but this ideal is far removed from the actualities of any known population. No modern treatise on pedagogy begins with the statement that the ideal boy knows things without being taught them and his sole wish is the advancement of science, but no boy at all like this has ever existed. It seems to me that that's kind of where we are with respect to democratic ideals. We have this entirely unrealistic notion about what democracy could be, and in trying to move in the direction of that very distant ideal, we may actually steer ourselves wrong in thinking about how politics actually works. So I wanna start by thinking about the role of elections and the mirage of popular control that's associated with elections. Again, to quote from Dahl in a much earlier work, um, what Aiken and I call the folk theory of democracy is pretty well summed up by his statement that popular sovereignty requires that whenever policy choices are perceived to exist, the alternative selected and enforced as governmental policy is the alternative most preferred by the members of the relevant political community. The uh, kind of a acerbic political philosopher, Mencken, uh, much earlier said this in a more, uh, I think, astute and colorful way. He said, democracy is the theory that the common people know what they want and deserve to get it good and hard. <laughs> um, well, how well does that actually work for us? I wanna talk about a variety of problems with this folk theory. The first is just a logical problem about what it means that the alternative most preferred by the members should be the one that's selected. If somebody somewhere has somehow boiled everything down to a choice between two options, A and B, then it makes perfect sense to say that if a majority prefers A, we should do A, and if a majority prefers B, we should prefer B. But in fact, real political choices are much more complicated than that. If you think about the current Brexit mess in Britain, for example, they had a very simple looking vote to say that uh, we don't like the status quo, we wanna do something different. Now they're wrestling with what the something different actually is and finding that it's very difficult to agree among themselves about what it is that they actually preferred. Then there are psychological issues that have to do with individual preferences. I refer here to framing effects and context dependence. It's turned out as political scientists and political psychologists over the last half century especially have looked more at the nature of people's preferences. They found that they're often very dependent on details of the context or details of the way the questions are asked. So for example, people are, very enthusiastic about spending more money on aid to the poor, but very unenthusiastic about spending more money on welfare, even though those are essentially the same program. Um, Even technical choices of terms, so for example, if you ask somebody whether something should be allowed or not allowed, they'll say it's not allowed, but then when you ask them, should it be forbidden, no, no, it shouldn't be forbidden. Uh, It's really a difficulty that we all have in thinking about how our very vague ideas about what the world should be like get translated into concrete political preferences. Often that arises as an issue in framing referenda, trying to decide what the right language for a referendum should be. Then there's one of the more obvious potential pitfalls here, uh, the political ignorance of most ordinary citizens. Uh, There's been a kind of pushback against this idea in political science, people pointing to Heuristics and information shortcuts of various kinds that might help people even if they don't know a lot about specific issues. Or what's referred to as the miracle of aggregation, the idea that if all the individuals are kind of hazy about how things work, a lot of the errors will cancel out and the electorate as a whole will somehow be wiser than individuals. Um, if people were really deciding entirely randomly that might make sense, but in fact we're all subject to the same kinds of vagaries if you think about a Presidential debate, we all get exposed to the same, probably irrelevant but certainly uh, impressionable um, events that occur during the debate, and so these errors are not the sort that are likely to even out uh, across the entire electorate. And finally, what I refer to is the illusion of issue voting. If you ask people why they voted for Trump or. why they voted for Hillary Clinton in the last election. They can come up with some laundry list about issues uh, where they agreed with the candidate that they voted for. But it turns out, if you look at detail, that those connections often go the opposite way from what you would expect. The best work on this subject, I think, is done by Gabriel Lenz at Berkeley, who studied the issue of Social Security privatization, which was a huge issue in the 2000 presidential campaign. If you looked in the early stages of 2000 at the relationship between people's views about Social Security privatization and their intentions to vote for Al Gore or George Bush, there was very little connection there. By the end of the campaign, by the time people actually got into the voting booth, there was a strong correlation between their views about that issue and their decision to vote for one or the other presidential candidates, so you might say to yourself, well, people figured out where the candidates stood on those issues and they voted accordingly. But in fact, using data where we have the same individuals tracked over time, it turns out that that correlation increased almost entirely because people who had no idea what they were for with respect to Social Security privatization learned over the case of the campaign that Bush thought it was a good idea and Gore thought it was a bad idea, and so people who were gonna support Bush for other reasons, got in the habit of saying, yeah, that sounds like a good idea. And people who are going to vote for Gore for other reasons decided that it was a bad idea. Their issue preferences were the cause of their voting behavior, not the, excuse me, they were the consequence of their voting behavior, not the cause of their voting behavior. As a result of all these limitations, elections really don't do much in the way of constraining the behavior of elected officials. Here's a kind of summary picture of that, uh, looking at Congressional districts across the country. Um, along the horizontal axis, I've arrayed the districts by the political preferences of the people who live there, from the most liberal on the left to the most conservative on the right. This is based on responses to about a dozen questions that people were asked about specific political issues. On the vertical axis, I've summarized the behavior of the elected officials. Uh, based on all the roll call votes they cast in Congress over a two-year period, with the most liberal on the bottom and the most conservative on the top. You see there's some correlation. Uh, More liberal districts tend to have more liberal representatives and more conservative districts tend to have more conservative representatives. But within the parties, there's really very little connection. There's only a weekly positive slope on the lines relating the preferences of constituents and their elected officials. And if you look in the middle of the figure at districts that are sufficiently moderate, that there's a pretty good chance that they could elect a Democrat or a Republican, you see that the behavior of the Democrats and the Republicans in those districts is vastly different. The difference between a Democrat and a Republican representing the same kind of moderate district is vastly greater than the difference between the most liberal Democrats and the most conservative Democrats, for example. Same kind of picture if you look at presidential elections. Here's a kind of summary over time of the position of swing voters in the middle of the distribution of the electorate on an ideological scale from liberal to conservative and the positions of the Republican candidates and Democratic candidates. They were never very close, but if anything, they have come further away over time. The candidates have become polarized in a way that doesn't correspond to anything that's going on in the electorate, because they can, basically. People who've done studies of The impact of the extremism of candidates in presidential elections have found that more extreme candidates might be punished by a percentage point or two, but that effect is swamped by lots of other things that have a bigger impact on election outcomes. So there's another alternative story about what might be going on in democratic elections. This one's become popular with political scientists over the last half century as they become disillusioned with what we call the folk theory. The idea here is that even if people aren't up on all of the specific issues, at least they can judge how things are going and evaluate the incumbents appropriately uh, in that respect. So this is uh, from a book by Mofi Arena in 1981. Retrospective voters need not know the precise economic or foreign policies of the incumbent administration in order to see or feel the results of those policies. If jobs have been lost in a recession, something is wrong. If sons have died in foreign rice paddies, something is wrong. If thugs make neighborhoods unsafe, something is wrong. If polluters follow food, water, or air, something is wrong. Now that sounds a lot easier than knowing the details of the candidates' positions on all sorts of policy issues, but if you stop to think about it, how likely are we to be good at doing these kinds of things? Think about pollution, for example. The real threats, to the environment are not threats that we can readily discern just by looking around at the world and indeed when the EPA got interested in public opinion they found that there was basically no correlation between the seriousness of various kinds of environmental threats as determined by their expert scientists and the seriousness of the threats as perceived by the public and so um, they basically began a big program to try and convince the public to see the world the way they do. Um, Not very successfully, but it points to the complexities of trying to assess how things are actually going on in lots of policy areas that we might care about. Nonetheless, this notion has been thought of as a kind of uh, fallback for democracy in the light of evidence about the Imperfections of uh, elections as mandates. Um, Gerald Kramer, writing in the early 1970s, said election outcomes are not irrational or random or solely the product of past loyalties and habits or of campaign rhetoric and merchandising. This was in the immediate wake of the concerns about the impact of television on politics. Um, uh, more precisely, V.O. Uh, Key, writing a little bit earlier, wrote that voters are not fools. Well, Our argument is not that voters are fools, but rather that it's difficult to do what the theory of retrospective voting asks us to do. It's harder than it looks. To discern changes in our own welfare, uh, to use those changes to ascertain whether the incumbents have performed poorly or well, and to think about what aspects of our well-being are plausibly attributable to incumbent leaders' policies or performance. Now, in most areas, it's a matter of debate even among experts how policies influence policy outcomes. If you think about the economy, for example, economists will tell different stories about how specific policies may or may not affect people's well-being. And so we thought it would be useful in order to try and focus in on the limitations of people's causal reasoning in these instances to try and find some aspect of well-being that we were pretty sure as outside observers was not Uh, the incumbent administration's fault. Um, And so we focused on things like droughts and floods and shark attacks. Um, Starting with a sequence of events off the Jersey Shore in the summer of 1916. Woodrow Wilson is the president in 1916. He's from New Jersey, had been the governor, and had been the president of Princeton University. Um, over the course of the summer of 1916, there was a series of shark attacks that were later novelized into the movie, and, uh, novel. first the novel and then the movie Jaws. On July 1st, the big 4th of July weekend, there was a swimmer who was killed by uh, a shark uh, off of Beach Haven. The newspaper headline doesn't mention a shark because actually scientists at the time thought that it was impossible for sharks to unprovoked, attacked uh, humans. uh, So they denied that a shark was even involved in this. Uh, But there was a lot of attention to it and people were concerned, not surprisingly. Um, Then several days later, there was another incident further north, uh, again, off the Jersey Shore, um, in which another swimmer was killed by a shark. And of course, now, you know, panic is rising. And then another week later, uh, in a little creek off the the ocean but not far away, a a teenager was mauled and killed by a shark. Uh, At this point there's national publicity uh, a war on ravenous man-eaters, people out in boats with guns looking to kill sharks and so on. Um, And a huge political uproar people wanted Wilson and the Wilson administration to do something about this. What were they going to do? Well obviously there was nothing they were going to do. Nevertheless the people in the affected communities were very badly affected um, not so much by the sharks themselves but rather by the impact on the tourist industry these were parts of the state that lived mostly on summer tourism and of course the tourists flocked away the president couldn't order them to show up at the beach and sit there in spite of the fact that they didn't want to be there anymore nonetheless when the election came around the places that were affected by this series of events turned pretty strongly against Woodrow Wilson in the particular communities where the shark attacks occurred, he lost something like eight or 10% of the vote relative to where he had been before and where he'd been um, in the rest of the state. But it's not just sharks. Uh, Here's an analysis of the impact of droughts and floods over the whole 20th century. Again, you probably can't see the details of the bars, but they show losses to the left or gains to the right for the incumbent party relative to where they had been in previous elections and uh, allowing for some other factors that clearly matter to election outcomes as a function of the fact that people's states were too wet or too dry in a particular election. And you can see that there's a pretty consistent, although not entirely uniform, negative impact of these droughts and floods on support for the incumbent president. The last bar down at the bottom there is for the 2000 election, which was the last one that we looked at, which, which we estimated that 4.7 4.7 million people voted against Al Gore because their states were too dry or too wet in the run-up to the election. And then the aspect of conditions that are most prominent in terms of election outcomes, uh, the state of the economy. Here's the historical relationship between how the economy is doing in the run-up to the election and how well the incumbent party does There are a couple of wrinkles here. One is that another thing that turns out to matter a lot is how long the incumbent party has been in power. Uh, The longer a party's been in power, the less popular they're likely to be. And so I've allowed for that in a way that's built into this graph. But the other thing I want to focus on is that the measure of economic outcomes here is a very short-term measure. It's how the economy is doing in the middle two quarters of the election year. So it's a six-month slice of reality in the run-up to the election, it turns out that anything that happens before that has virtually no impact on the election outcome. So people are very focused on these short-term fluctuations that may be affected in some way by the incumbent's policies, but isn't likely to be a very reliable indicator of how well the incumbent party has done, even with respect to producing income growth over its entire administration. And... Perhaps surprisingly, that was true even in the Great Depression. This is the worst economic emergency in American history. You might think that people were sufficiently focused and sufficiently serious about the problem, that they would be uh, more systematic in terms of evaluating economic conditions. It turns out there that much of Roosevelt's support in his landslide election in 1936, which is often attributed to a kind of ideological endorsement of the New Deal, turned out to have to do with the same kinds of factors, how the economy was doing in the run-up to the election. And by comparison, if you look at the relationship with economic growth in 1934, 1935, Roosevelt presided over a huge economic improvement in those two years, which seemed to have no impact at all on his popularity by 1936. Okay, so how does all of this happen given that we think that we're thinking about politics rationally? Um, Largely by fooling ourselves. Here's one way we fool ourselves. This is the relationship between the political views of individual citizens from the extreme left to the extreme right, And their sense, their perception, of whether the Republican Party or the Democratic Party is closer to their position. If you look at the blue line on the left, Democrats, uh, excuse me, uh, ideological liberals think that the Democratic Party is much closer than the Republican Party to their positions, which is what they ought to think. Uh, The upper right... Strong conservatives think the Republican Party is closer to their views than the Democratic Party is. They're right. But the interesting people are the people whose ideological positions uh, are different from their parties. Republicans, who are relatively liberal, have managed to convince themselves that the Republican Party is just as moderate as they are. Democrats, who are conservative, managed to think that the Democratic Party is just as moderate as they are. So once we have these partisan loyalties, we can shape and reshape our perceptions of what the parties are actually doing in a way that's pretty profound. Even more profoundly, the same kind of patterns appear in assessments of actual objective conditions. Uh, One of the things you might evaluate the president on is how well he does in keeping the budget deficit under control. Here are data from the end of Bill Clinton's first term. Over the course of his first term, Bill Clinton reduced the federal budget deficit by about 75%. Uh, Nonetheless, lots of people thought that the deficit had gotten worse over the course of his presidency rather than better. If you think about Democrats, again, they're the blue line. Only about the top 30% of Democrats even began to recognize that their president had made a significant improvement in the budget deficit since that was something that didn't mesh very well with the political culture assumptions about what presidents do to deficits. And for Republicans, it was even worse. You can get out to the top 15% or so and see a little bit of recognition there that uh, Clinton had actually done something good on the budget deficit. But the really interesting part of this figure to me is looking at what happens for Republicans as they go from entirely uninformed on the far, left to Republicans of average levels of political information in the middle of the picture. you See, they're systematically becoming wronger and wronger the more informed they are about politics because those are the Republicans who know just enough about what's going on to realize that it would be an embarrassment to them and their party if a Democratic president was actually doing something good on this front. So they convince themselves that the deficit is actually getting worse rather than better. less well-informed than the least well-informed people at the far left. So what are people doing? Mostly they're voting on the basis of their social identities and their partisanship. Um, There's some analyses in the book of the behavior of specific neighborhoods in Boston with different ethnic uh, communities to the New Deal. Uh, We have some analysis of the behavior of Catholics in 1960 when a Catholic uh, ran for president, made a difference. Um, the shifts in the South, profound historical shifts in response to uh, the Democrats attachment to the Civil Rights Act, often interpreted as being a kind of ideological reaction by people who were uh, themselves racially conservative in terms of their policy preferences, uh, turning against the Democratic Party as it associated itself with civil rights issues. But in fact, if you look below the surface, it turns out that The differences on policy between Democrats and Republicans in the South actually were pretty slow to develop. And what seemed to matter more in the short term was people's identities as white Southerners and their sense of uh, the Democratic Party abandoning them as a social group more than specific policy views. And then the issue of abortion, where we have some data showing that um, as the parties took strong positions on the issue of abortion over the course of the 1980s, Some people shifted their views about the parties to conform with their views about abortion. Many other people shifted their views about abortion to conform with their partisanship. Uh, Women were disproportionately in the first category, although by no means all, and men were disproportionately in the second category, although again, by no means all. We don't think of political leaders as being the kinds of people we turn to for advice about the uh, most important moral issues facing the country, but in fact, That's where a lot of people's views come from. And of course, we have the current period, President Trump, who certainly appealed to identities in a variety of important and profound ways. How did that all play out? My story is that the 2016 election is what I'll call an extraordinary ordinary election. It was ordinary first in terms of the relationship that I showed you between underlying fundamental conditions and the incumbent party's success. Without knowing anything else about the 2016 election, other than how long the Democratic Party had been in power and how the economy was doing, you would have predicted a narrow Republican victory. And in fact, that's exactly what happened. Not only that, but if you look across states, the relationship between how states voted in 2012 and how they voted in 2016 was quite tight, with the notable exception of Utah, which was behaving oddly in 2012 because Mitt Romney was from Utah, uh, but also in 2016 because there was a third-party candidate there who drew a lot of support from Trump. But looking across most states, you see a very tight relationship indicating a lot of continuity in voting behavior. Looks the same if you look across social groups. People have talked a lot about the defection of working-class whites from the Democratic Party in 2016, but those shifts actually were of about the magnitude that we've seen in most recent presidential elections. That seems to me to be a really telling indication of the importance of partisanship in the current climate and people's ability and willingness to be able to go pretty far in the direction of what their party suggests is the right thing to do at any given time. As we wrote in the book, election outcomes are mostly just erratic reflections of the current balance of partisan loyalties in a given political system. In a two-party system with competitive elections, that means that the choice between the candidates is essentially a coin toss. Now, when people get told that the result of a presidential election is essentially a coin toss, it makes them pretty uncomfortable, I can tell you from experience. Uh, But in fact, I think that's the right way to, to think about it. So in light of all that, what's good about democracy? Well, here are some suggestions. One is that they're a useful coordinating mechanism, uh, all concerned abide by the toss of the coin, as VOK put it, and that mitigates violence and social unrest of various kinds, although this is one of the good things about democracy that you may think is at least somewhat at risk in the current political environment, since Trump certainly made noises in advance of the election about not abiding by the toss of the coin if it went against him. The essential randomness of election outcomes prevents any single party or group from becoming entrenched in power. That's probably a good thing. Neglected groups, if they're not too unpopular, are attractive targets for recruitment, making democracies relatively inclusive. And the way we put it in the book, re-election-seeking politicians strive to avoid salient violations of consensual norms. Uh, The example we gave was, you don't see a president strangling a kitten on national television on the White House lawn. Um, The president did say during the campaign that he could shoot somebody on Fifth Avenue uh, and get away with it. And so again, this is one of the good things about democracy that may be a kind of overly optimistic sense of democracy uh, on our part pre-2016. But I wanna leave you with this summing up from the political philosopher John Dunn, who said, To be ruled is both necessary and inherently discomforting as well as dangerous. For our rulers to be accountable to us softens its intrinsic humiliations, probably sets some hazy limits to the harms that they will voluntarily choose to do to us collectively and thus diminishes some of the dangers to which their rule may expose us. To suggest that we can ever hope to have the power to make them act just as we would wish them to suggests that it is really we, not they, who are ruling. That is an illusion and probably a somewhat malign illusion, either a self-deception or an instance of being deceived by others or very probably both. Thank you. The microphones are going to appear and I'd be happy to take questions.
3: Columbia Law Professor Tim Wu had an opinion piece in the New York Times yesterday that suggested that rather than um, polarization we're seeing, a more likely scenario is an um, overall suppression of a bipartisan supermajority of American voters that really wants a more progressive agenda. and. Uh, The suggestion is that maybe that's being done by corporate money. And it pretty much was a more populist view of things, um, suggesting that maybe we need more left-wing populism to counter the right-wing populism that's in power today. I was wondering if you had any thoughts on that.
2: Um, Both parties can point to issues in which a majority of citizens seems to be on their side, especially if they're allowed to define the issue in some way that um, is appealing or popular. Um, My general point, which I think is, applies to some extent on both sides, is that the views of ordinary citizens as a general matter don't have much influence on policy outcomes, that mostly they're determined by the ideological convictions of the elected officials. If you go back and think about this picture, Um, these elected officials are voting mostly on the basis of their ideological convictions rather than what their constituents want. And so there are all sorts of issues, some of which are uh, popular on the left, where we can see consistent disparities between people's preferences and policy outcomes. One that I wrote about in my um, book on inequality is the issue of the minimum wage, where over the entire period that we've had survey data for 40 years now there's been a consistent strong popular urge to increase the minimum wage it mostly doesn't happen occasionally it does but not quickly enough to keep up with changes in wages Um, because when Republicans are in office they think it's a bad idea to increase the minimum wage and so they don't do it. The other part of your point is about the role of money in shaping the ideological convictions of elected officials. I think that is an important consideration, although it's another area where I think people's views are overly simplistic. If you think about the role of money in American politics, one thing to keep in mind is that the amount of money that corporations spend on campaigns is something like an eighth or a tenth of the amount of money that they spend on lobbying. So even if we changed the campaign finance system entirely, my guess is that it wouldn't make any huge difference to the role of money in American politics. The other point that I want to make is that the role of money seems to have less to do with the specific institutions that we operate under in the US than with a kind of profound connection between economic power and political power. I say that partly based on work that I've been doing lately, looking at what things look like in Europe. They don't have the same kinds of campaign finance systems. Um, The political role of corporations is different. Um, Labor unions are stronger. There are all kinds of reasons to think that they would be more democratic. But if you look at the relative impact of affluent and poor people in those places, it looks very much like it does in the U.S., so I think there's something more profound going on that makes it hard for any democracy, certainly in an advanced, affluent economy, um, to ignore the preferences of people who happen to have a lot of economic power.
4: Uh, what does your research tell us about party primaries? In 2016, there were a dozen Republican candidates, and it looks like we'll have even more in the future 2020 for Democrats.
2: My first book was about presidential primaries. This was my dissertation, and so I struggled for years with this topic. Didn't understand it. Thought I was going to be a failure in the profession until it suddenly occurred to me that my contribution scientifically was to point out that we didn't understand it and to try and explain why it was that we didn't understand it. There are lots of reasons. Partly it has to do with how little people know about the candidates at that stage in the race and the absence of the kind of structuring that partisanship does in the general election is mostly absent from primaries. But the other piece of it that I think is important is that we've put a burden on citizens that they really couldn't bear even if they were, you know, as informed and enlightened and attentive as we could possibly want citizens to be. There are 20 people out there running. They don't have any idea who most of them are. They're voting one state at a time. Um, Most of what they're getting in the way of information comes from these wacky debates in which the candidate's main incentive is to be able to be on camera longer than the other candidates. And so I think it's a very difficult um, process. We do it this way because we think it gives people greater political control again it's a kind of populist folk theory notion that you know the parties would be better if only ordinary people picked the candidates but it turns out not to work that way in fact you can find comparisons between more closed and open nominating processes in different countries and find that the candidates are as likely or even more likely to reflect the views of ordinary citizens in places that don't have primaries and leave that selection process mostly to professional politicians than in places where ordinary citizens are the ones who try and work through this complex set of candidates and settle on one as their party's nominee. (laughs)
3: Your comment you just made is quite interesting to me. I read um, uh, some time ago, maybe a month or so ago, a way to really mess things up is to let the general population decide complicated matters and what they were talking about was what has happened in
2: Britain. Um, Yeah, as I said briefly, it seems to me to be a good illustration, there's been a lot of talk you know, on both sides about whether it made sense to hold a referendum in the first place. But I think what's happened in the wake of the referendum has underlined the difficulty of making policy on the basis of plebiscitary kinds of processes. So people voted by a narrow margin, but voted nevertheless to pull out of the European Union. Um, but what that meant in the way of policy going forward wasn't at all clear certainly to the voters and uh, it turns out now certainly not to the policymakers themselves either and so now they have this very complicated situation where they can't agree among themselves on what the the political elites can't agree among themselves about what the alternative is in some ways they would like to punt it back to the voters but the voters aren't in any better position now probably than they were before to actually work out the policy for themselves some of them say that they changed their view about the original question based on what they've learned in the meantime, but even if that was the case, it's hard to know how that would settle on a specific policy alternative.
0: I have a question about the Electoral College. Do you think that will, will continue to use that? And why is that so powerful?
2: Um, Well, it's powerful because it's part of the constitutional structure. And uh, in a way, it's been radically altered from the original intention, which was to insulate the selection of a president from ordinary voters by having a two-step process in which they would vote for some local notable within their community that they trusted to make a good political judgment. And then those people would get together and actually pick a president, they thought that that would work better. That way of thinking about things pretty quickly clashed with a version of what we called the folk theory with this idea that people ought to control things for themselves and since then we've mostly been trying to get around the electoral college as best we can. The latest proposal for getting around it is a very ingenious system that was developed, I think by a computer scientist at Stanford in the first instance in which states would vote to cast their electoral votes for the winner of the popular vote if enough states had agreed to do that to make that um, sufficient to ensure that the winner of the popular vote would get a majority. That's a, you know, a cockamamie way to try and get around the original constitutional provisions. It could work except for a variety of complexities, maybe the most important of which is that our elections are administered entirely by states and localities not by the federal government. And so there's actually not any way to, for anyone to specify what the popular vote outcome actually is. We get it you know, within a few hundred thousand votes one way or the other pretty quickly. Um, but if you actually had to say you know, which candidate got more popular votes, if the vote is within 10,000 votes, certainly it would be impossible to tell. And if it was within 100,000 votes, it probably would be impossible to tell. So my guess is that if that system is, adopted. um, It'll probably work for a few times and then break down in some crisis along the lines that I've just sketched.
0: So we'll continue with the, there's no, with the electoral college?
2: Well, there's unhappiness about the electoral college whenever it turns out to matter, but the unhappiness is strongly concentrated on the side of whichever party lost as a result and so right now a lot of democrats think it's a terrible thing republicans aren't too concerned about it um if it turned out in the next election that the shoe was on the other foot my guess is that people's procedural preferences would switch accordingly for most people the electoral college is not a salient part of their lives um one that they've spent a lot of time thinking about okay
5: thank you Is there anything in your research that would tell us or inform us how vulnerable the United States is towards accepting or adopting a more uh, authoritarian form of government? And I ask that question for two reasons. One, because our President has made a very visible point of embracing Authoritarian forms of government like North Korea, China, Russia, and because the Republican majority in the Senate and formally in the House prior to this last election seem to have been awfully silent on that affection that he's been expressing. And so I, it makes me concerned where the populace is. And if you have any information on that, that would be great.
2: Um, I guess I have two reactions. One is based on work that I've done lately looking at support for right-wing populist parties in Europe where there's been a great deal of concern about um, what's often referred to as the populist wave or the populist explosion. Um, It turns out that we have pretty consistent survey data from lots of European countries going back over the last 15 years. And if you look at their views about all the things that are supposed to be, associated with right-wing populism. If you look, for example, at anti-immigrant views, uh, opposition to the European Union, disaffection with democracy, economic distress, all those things are essentially flat across Europe over the last 15 years. For some of them, there was a little dip down in the immediate wake of the economic crisis and then a kind of rebounding. And so the metaphor that I use is that right-wing populism in Europe is not a wave, but rather a reservoir. That support has always been out there. Politicians mostly haven't appealed to it, and lately they've become somewhat more effective at appealing to it and mobilizing it for actual support for right-wing populist parties. But even now, the good news is that only a small fraction of people who have these views are actually supporting right-wing populist parties. The bad news is that only a small fraction of people who have these views are supporting right-wing populist parties. So um, you could certainly see much more effective mobilization. The other part of the answer, which is more grounded in work that's been done on the U.S. going back to the 1950s and 60s about public support for democratic values in the wake of the experience of Nazism and fascism, social scientists in the U.S. in the immediate post-war period got very interested in the public underpinnings of democracy. And so they went around and talked to ordinary people about constitutional rights and procedures and stuff and discovered pretty quickly that for most people that's very abstract and vague. And so they know that they're supposed to be in favor of whatever's in the Constitution or the Declaration of Independence, but you can suggest all kinds of things and tell them it's in the Constitution and they'll therefore support it. They don't really have a very clear understanding about what democratic values actually are. And certainly when those values conflict with their immediate substantive political preferences, they're likely to find some way to to try and get around that potential conflict. And so my sense based on those data is that the, real underpinnings of democracy in terms of protecting us from authoritarian tendencies has always been less on the part of the general public than on the part of political elites. And so what I would find worrying about the current situation in the US is the extent to which political elites, not all of them, certainly you know, not judges, but a lot of elected officials, um, have been willing to suspend what they had previously considered to be the norms of appropriate democratic behavior in order to try and get their, um, their way politically. And I recommend if you're interested in this question in a really good book that was published a year or two ago now called How Democracies Die by a couple political scientists who mostly spent their careers studying fascism and authoritarian governments in Latin America, but have tried to use the lessons of how those democracies actually broke down uh, to think about what's happening in the U.S. and which aspects of current American practice we ought to be worried about in the longer run.
4: I have two questions. It seems to me that your critique of democracy is really a critique of human beings. And therefore, my first question is, do you think it even matters what kind of government people have because they're all going to be so terribly flawed? And my second question is, if you say, well, I believe in democracy for the reasons that you gave at the end of your talk, which I must say were very... Minimal kinds of arguments. I apologize for that. But my point is if you say you believe in democracy for those reasons, then isn't it true that the more people who hear your views and criticism of democracy, the less those reasons will actually work? People will give up on democracy and therefore you will have brought about its demise."
2: (laughs) That seems a lot to hope for from a university press book. Uh, There's an important point here though I want not to leave you confused. The criticism is not a criticism of democracy, it's a criticism of what we call the folk theory of democracy. What we're saying is not that democracy is a bad thing or that it doesn't have important virtues even when operated by people like us ordinary humans, but rather that the problem is with the theory of democracy that overlooks all those human limitations and suggests that the practical road to improving our politics is to imagine that we could somehow be like the boy who doesn't need any nutrition, um, that we could just suspend all of our human limitations and operate like the folk theory suggests that we should. I don't mean it to be a criticism of democracy, but rather a criticism of this particular simplistic picture of what democracy is.
1: If there is such a uh, deep cynic- cynicism and like, neglect of, of politics among uh, regular people, how can they impact the policies that affect their everyday lives?
2: Um, the implication of this picture is that the main thing that determines what policy outcomes are gonna look like is whether the people who are in charge in any given moment are the blue ones or the red ones. Um, and so I think in that sense, the current partisan polarization makes a good deal of sense. People ought to figure out what side they're on and hope that that side wins, but realize, as I said, that you know, on average in a closely run system, the elections are going to be a coin toss, and so sometimes your side is going to win, sometimes your side is going to lose, and you want to be hopeful that you can accomplish as much of what you think is right when your side wins, and not have it be entirely erased when your side loses. Uh,
6: So, is it, uh, so I would say that the undercurrents of your uh, criticism of folk theory is, is bemoaning the... The, uh, the reliance of irrational impulses in the voting booth, something that can't be uh, explained by the actual logical causal chains that can lead someone to a conclusion rather than some random uh, variable that just happens to happen on this day when, where voting happens. So is it possible that that reliance on impulse, is not necessarily a destructive thing toward democracy itself, rather just uh, we rely on impulse and maybe the British Enlightenment got it right. Fact and feeling is, are on equal footing and we should, uh, they support us equally. And so fact and feeling, or, or maybe feeling, can lead to not necessarily destructive, but benign outcomes. Uh, toward our democratic, democratic institutions. Well certainly that's sometimes
2: the case and I think if you buy the picture of human nature that you put forward, which I do mostly buy, it seems to me that what we want to do is to design institutions in a way that make it more rather than less likely that people mostly following their impulses are gonna do things that are gonna have good consequences rather than bad consequences. One way that we talk a little bit about putting this into practice is to imagine a world in which interest groups were more effective than they are in the current political environment at influencing public policy on behalf of their constituents. So if I'm a working person and a member of a labor union, I wouldn't have to work out all the details of what economic policy should be, but rather would, on the basis of my solidarity with my fellow union members basically give a proxy to union leaders to play a role in the political process on my behalf. I think that's an example of the ways in which people's political identities and their group attachments might be harnessed more effectively to produce policy outcomes that actually work on their behalf. Um, Ordinary union members aren't going to do a very good job of figuring out what kinds of economic policies they should support. But insofar as labor leaders are legitimate representatives of their concerns and are paying attention to the policymaking process and have an important voice in the policymaking process. That's likely to produce outcomes that are, on average, I would guess, better for union members than they would be otherwise. Excuse me. Uh, The context of your study and your findings are within our current two-party political system. I'm wondering if you could comment on whether you believe they would hold up or how they would change
4: if you were in a system of forced-ranked elections and viable
2: uh, parties beyond a two-party system? Um, Forced choice or uh, ranked elections are one of those reforms that appeals a lot to people who spend a lot of time thinking about politics because they actually know 17 different parties or candidates and what they stand for and can actually rank them. For most people, I think, They're not into it in a way that would actually be very helpful in that respect. The main practical implication probably would be to fracture the two party system and to allow uh, a larger number of parties to have a significant political role. In countries where that is the system, it doesn't appear that it makes much difference in terms of the patterns of behavior that we observe from ordinary citizens, but what it does do is to clarify, in a way that might be healthy, the role of political elites. So, for example, you vote for whichever party you want to vote for, but you don't imagine that that in itself will determine the composition of the government. You know that the party leaders are going to negotiate among themselves and come up with some kind of coalition, which will then run the parliament for a while. Um, That's probably in some ways useful, because it's a recognition that they, rather than us, are actually making The decisions about who's in charge at that level, but also has all kinds of complexities and absurdities connected with it in terms of the way the coalition politics actually works. So I'm not sure on average whether it would produce better outcomes or worse outcomes. Most of the analysis that political scientists have done have not actually gotten to assessing how well these systems actually work compared to each other in part because we're not very good at specifying what it is that we want politics to do.
3: Uh, The state of Maine adopted ranked choice voting recently. Um, To follow up on his comment, in the mid-1800s, the Liberty Party, the Free Soil Party, and the newly formed Republican Party brought an anti-slavery agenda to the ballot box, and later the Equal Rights Party, Prohibition Party, and Socialist Party of America championed women's suffrage. In the late 19th century and early 20th century, the Socialist Party and Progressive Parties like the People's Party, the 1912 Progressive Bull Moose Party, led by Teddy Roosevelt, And the 1924 Progressive Party, uh, led by fighting Bob Lafette, um, advanced a range of causes, among them social security, unemployment insurance, workers' compensation, food and drug regulations, the eight-hour workday, ending child labor, and the direct election of US senators. So the very fabric of what we have today was woven by these alternative parties. Um, I see a lot of red and blue up here. The fact is that most Americans today do identify as independent, and frankly, myself included, I see a lot of gray here. So I guess I was wondering if you want to comment on those comments.
2: <laughs> uh, I noticed that your historical rendition stopped before you got to George Wallace. I mean, there are third parties that I think have had a healthy role in terms of the way they've moved the political system and others less so. Um, again, the comparison with Europe I think is interesting, where these right-wing populist parties have gotten a toehold in a lot of political systems, and they get representation in the parliaments in a way that they hadn't in the United States. On the other hand, as a result, maybe it's less likely that one of the major parties gets taken over by right-wing populist impulses um, the way that it certainly can in the United States. Um, So, I mean, I think it goes, both ways sometimes they can be helpful and sometimes not. Um, the red and blue I mean it's true that a lot of people, if you ask them in surveys say that they're political independents. if you scratch even slightly below the surface, they often tend to be at least as partisan and often more partisan than the partisans are in terms of the way they think and talk about politics. so I think the idea that most people uh, you know are in this kind of elevated enlightened neutral position even-handedly judging the two sides is probably a misconception at least for the current period
0: there's a lot of discussion right now going on about the our democracy being in a state of crisis and I'd like your thoughts on that and also your thoughts on the future of our democracy
2: It's hard to know what a state of crisis is. I think political scientists have announced dozens of crises of democracy in the time that I've been in the profession. Um, There are certainly some things about the contemporary environment that seem off-putting, but again, we don't, I think, have a very good way of figuring out how to weigh those against the things that aren't going so badly. Um, An example that I like to point to here is the period of... American democracy in the middle of the 20th century, which many of us still, I think, take as being the kind of baseline expectation of what a political system should be. We had a relatively small number of relatively moderate media establishments. We had a lot of heterogeneity within each party about ideology and political preferences. Um, That was based on a lot of very specific circumstances, maybe most importantly, the Cold War, which imposed a kind of pressure toward agreement uh, that wouldn't otherwise have existed, and the suppression of racial issues, um, especially, but not only in the South. So there were significant problems with that political regime as well. But political scientists, in their way, you know, were concerned about the state of democracy and the most important public intervention of the political science profession over the entire course of the 20th century was a report that was put out by the American Political Science Association um, in that period called Toward a More Responsible Two-Party System. The problem as they saw it was that the parties were too much alike and what we needed was more distinct parties with strong policy stands that people could identify with and attach themselves to. Well. Here we are. How do you like it, guys? Um, That's a kind of underlining of the complexity of any evaluation that we want to do of the state of democracy at a particular moment. Um, But also, I think, points to how impoverished our analyses are in terms of thinking about what democracy ought to be. And my sense, at least, or the argument of the book is that That impoverishment has a significant part to do with this simplistic notion that what we're trying to do is to build a kind of mouse trap machine that will translate people's preferences into policy outcomes in as uh, apolitical a way as possible.
0: Just a quick announcement as we close this program. Uh, First, join me once again in thanking Dr. Bartels. wonderful. Now, please join us in the lobby for a reception and book signing. And please note that uh, April 10th, Melody Barnes will give the final talk uh, in this series, Can We Make Our Democracy Work? So come back in a few weeks. Thanks very
1: much.